This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, artful megaphones and microfluidics. But first up, here's the news. Unsoundproofed. Even in this age of relentless government surveillance, when you're in a room without electronics, behind soundproof glass, you might expect to enjoy a private conversation. Not anymore. Researchers at MIT have worked out how to turn almost any object in the room into a passive visual microphone. For decades, spies were able to focus a laser onto the window of a room and capture the reflections to record the window's vibrations and use it as an active visual microphone. The active part is shining the laser. The technique was invented with focus light by Leon Theremin in 1947. Yes, he's the guy who invented the musical instrument used in the Doctor Who theme. The first laser was used by Theodore Maiman in 1960, 13 years after Theremin's invention. It's said that in the White House, This laser microphone eavesdropping is prevented by little speakers on the windows that randomly vibrate them to overwhelm any listener with noise. Another technique to frustrate eavesdroppers with laser microphones would be to have running water or music in the room. Some sound with frequencies that overlap with your voices. The MIT researchers have developed a way to reproduce sound from within a room by passively video recording the tiny vibrations of objects in the room such as a potato chip bag, aluminium foil, the leaves of a potted plant, and even a glass of water. The video camera can sit 5 metres away from the soundproof glass window, and there's no need for a laser to give away your spying. For a clear reconstruction, they need the frame rate of the video recording to be higher than the frequency of the sound. A high-speed camera is ideal, and in some of their experiments, they used cameras that capture video at 2,000 to 6,000 frames per second. Some commercial cameras can go even faster. Smartphone cameras usually work at just 60 frames per second. Amongst the earliest recordings of speech were Thomas Edison reciting Mary Had a Little Lamb in 1877 on an aluminium foil record player. Unfortunately, the recording didn't survive. However, the Internet Archive have a recording from 1927 where Edison demonstrated how he made his original recording for a 50-year celebration film by the Movie Tone News team. To honour Edison, the MIT researchers used Mary Had a Little Lamb as their sound source. 
here's the original sound in the room. And now, here's the sound reconstructed from the vibrations of a potted plant's leaves from a high-speed camera in the same room. And here's the original source, this time Edison. Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, that lamb was sure to go. And here's the sound reconstructed from the vibrations on a potato chip packet from a high-speed camera that's five metres away on the other side of a soundproof glass window. It turns out that through a quirk of the design of ordinary digital cameras, that even 60 frames per second is more useful than they expected. They're able to infer information about high-frequency sound using ordinary 60 frame per second cameras because they don't capture a whole frame at once, but actually capture a row of pixels at a time, in what's known as a rolling shutter. This means that slight distortions on the edges of objects contain information about the object's high-frequency vibrations. Decoding this lower-quality image didn't give as clear and accurate audio as the high-speed cameras, but it did let them identify the gender of the speaker and how many people were speaking. If they had previous clear recordings of people's voices, then they could compare with the characteristics in the speaker's voice extracted from the video that let them identify who was speaking. Now, once again, here's some original sound. And now here's the sound reconstructed from video of a chip packet recorded at 60 frames per second on a consumer digital camera such as you might have in your pocket. The frames of video are passed through many filters which let them measure fluctuations such as changes in colour values at boundaries, at several different angles and at several different distances. The algorithm combines the output from all the filters to work out the motions of the object as a whole, as it's moved by the sound waves in the room. Because this works from regular video cameras as well as high-speed video cameras, think about all the digital video files, surveillance and otherwise, that have been recorded and are still being recorded. Imagine what could be learned by analysing them for the vibrations from the audio that was out of reach of a microphone. As well as the obvious use to spies and police, the researchers are excited that they're collecting new information about the material and structural properties of objects from their visible response to short bursts of sound. The researchers have been able to measure the motions of objects within a tenth of a micrometer which is about five thousandths of a pixel in a close-up image. 
they use a change in a single pixel's colour over time to infer motions smaller than the pixel itself. Their paper was published in the journal Association for Computing Machinery, Transactions on Graphics, and was titled The Visual Microphone, Passive Recovery of Sound from Video, and was also presented at SIGGRAPH, the Special Interest Group for Graphics Conference, an international community who share an interest in computer graphics and interactive techniques. The video of the experiments will be embedded in the episode notes on www.diffusionradio.com. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Meow Ludo Meow Meow is the founding member of Biohack Sydney. He's a final year university student with a background in molecular biology. Here's Meow explaining microfluidics. Microfluidics is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's any type of system that uses tiny little amounts of liquid. We use microfluidic devices every day. Some of the most common times you'll encounter a microfluidic device would be a pregnancy test, or maybe hopefully not, um, and an inkjet printer. An inkjet printer is droplet-based microfluidics, so it takes a, a, a large volume of liquid, or relatively, and then creates picolitter droplets, which it very accurately shoots onto a page. Uh, a pregnancy test uses the capillary action of water, which is a microfluidic phenomenon, to, to drive it. In microfluidics, they get a very different type of fluid dynamics that makes it its own field. So generally, we think about, uh, on a macro scale, the inertial forces dominate over the viscous forces. Now, just to have an example of that, if you have a pipe that is a meter thick, most of that liquid is in contact with itself. If you reduce that down to, say, the width of a hair, most of the fluid would be in contact with the surface of the walls. So as you make the system smaller, the inertial forces dominate, so the interaction with the surroundings. This is great in some cases and not in some cases. One field that it's really useful in is diagnostics. The other one is in industry. The way I think about it is any chemical reaction where you need high contact of the material with the surface. An example might be purification of metals. You might have a catalyst on the surface of the material you're running it through, but you need to make sure that the entirety of the liquid has come into contact with the surface to catalyze some reaction, maybe purifying gold out or something like that. One interesting thing is that it's massively parallel. So even though you might be using nanoliters, you know, fractions of a droplet going through this system at a time, it lends itself well to parallelization. So you can run hundreds, if not thousands, tens of thousands of these cells or systems all in parallel next to each other to increase the speed of the reactions or diagnosis without compromising sensitivity. And what's the history? That's a very good question. <laughs> so microfluidics evolved out of a whole heap of related and maybe semi-unrelated disciplines. I think the most important parent of microfluidics is the microprocessor revolution. So microfluidics came out of technologies that were founded in making microprocessors. Even to this day, the substrates and the technology used are very, very similar, if not identical to the ones still used to make microprocessors. I think that once microprocessors 
were made. So uh, in fact, I might go into the history of this. So to make a microprocessor, you basically take a piece of silicon and you put a chemical on top called a, a photoresist. And then you put a stencil on top and you shine UV light through. And this allows you to nano pattern the silicon and achieve very accurate and small scale patterns onto a piece of silicon. And silicon is chosen because it's very flat. People use this initially to design microprocessors. And then that emerged into a field called MEMS, microelectromechanical systems, which were thinking about using this process as an engineering tool. Um, you know, instead of making a canal for some gold to go through or make a, a circuit, what about if we made a gear or a cog? So that, that started to get people thinking different ways that this could be used and maybe make things like accelerometers that could only be manufactured on, on that scale with that sensitivity. Uh, people started thinking, I wonder if, in, if instead of flowing electricity through this, we could flow liquids through this, use this as, uh, as a diagnostic tool. I had interest from DARPA. Um, in the 90s, the field of genomics was just starting to open up. Uh, there was a lot of need for some gas chromatography sensing equipment that was kind of bordering between MEMS and microfluidics. And then um, I think the biggest push that came then was the genomics revolution really opened up microfluidics. In microfluidics, it's important to note the master molds are generally done in silicon, so a metal, but often they're cast into a material called PDMS, which is an elastomeric plastic. Um, the reason for this is it can exchange different gases and it's also transparent. So it can be used to do biological work. This is fantastic if you're a biologist because you can all of a sudden do things like grow a tumor inside an environment where you need very high levels of control over the nutrients that it's getting but still be able to examine it at the same time under a microscope. In fact, some people are doing things now like growing entire systems on a chip. So maybe the, the circulatory system or the digestive system, and they'll have a series of cells in parallel that will flow things through so they can get very good under... Uh, having a, a system on a chip is really useful because you can test drugs across a whole range of cells and see how the product of that drug will change from cell type to cell type as you go along. Uh, if you're running a tumor on a chip, you might want to be able to test it under a whole heap of different conditions, so growing them in 100,000 different ways. It's a very exciting time for microfluidics in biology. That was Meow Ludo Meow Meow explaining microfluidic labs on a chip. And finally, I spoke with Kit at Dorkbot, the collective of technological artists. Kit builds musical instruments from megaphones. Looking at technology from an artist's perspective. She presented at Dorkbot on the theme of listening, feedback and megaphones. Talking about her listening voice performance. Kit spoke to me in the pub afterwards, and you can hear some of the pub noises in the background. I'm interested in the concept of listening and creating and creating as a form of listening. So basically, the question that I wanted to not so much resolve, but kind of like put out there tonight was how can we, what are we creating when we are listening? And that, you know, 
listening in itself is a form of creation and you know kind of like separating I guess our ideas of hearing and listening as kind of separate and like understanding listening as kind of like a whole body kind of like sensory receiving where it's also including kind of like spiritual receivings as well and you know like I guess for me when I'm imagining listening I'm imagining like your body is kind of like absorbing the world like a sponge <laughs> so I guess by working with megaphones as well you know it's how do we listen to megaphones and you know um, kind of like creating this play with reverse amplification as well yeah and you're using megaphones yeah so your real boring dry megaphones that you know I guess like you often see are used in protests or used by police uh, used uh, in sports used in punk bands today I guess like the instrument the instrument or the tool it's like I'm also understood as a tool the megaphone is kind of like this dead piece of tool or instrument it's kind of like this it's in a strange place. Like I don't, like, not many people kind of like mess around with it. And I don't know whether it's because you know it kind of has this essence of authority with it. You know, it's kind of like it does have this history. Like if we think about the megaphone like a horn, like it does kind of give reference back to the horn. And like a horn, when horns were used, like they were used to, like as an act of summoning. You know, and and, and so you've got the act of summoning. You've got these kind of like feelings of like authority, these feelings of, you know, giving instruction. So I guess like by hacking into, you know, the functions of a megaphone, I'm kind of like challenging these like social kind of like norms that way, kind of like, you know, how else can we use this instrument? And, 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 and I think that's basically what I do in a lot of my practice is kind of like, how else can we use it, you know, and why haven't we looked at this and, you know, is it because we're too scared to touch something that has, like, authority written all over it? Yeah. And so you change the circuitry, you switch it around in the megaphone, don't you? Yep, so basically what I've done in my megaphones is that I reverse amplify them. So basically, um, instead of it amplifying recordable sound, it's recording amplifiable sound. So basically what I work with is um, 50 watt megaphones they're all battery powered so basically you could call it a mega microphone so we can pick up sound from you know about a hundred feet away which is great so it works like a parabolic microphone and it kind of like uses the cone of the megaphone as a reflector and kind of soaks in sound from the entire room so I guess what I hook my megaphones up to as well is my synthesizer my OP1 and so it works like a four track and basically I attach a loop to the synthesizer and so it records the spatial sound and then it plays it back through the other megaphone and then it records it through one megaphone it plays it back through the other megaphone it kind of starts to digest the sound and starts to destroy the sound um, and create new sound as well yeah and there's feedback as well yeah so what I was working with at the Dorkbot presentation was a performance on feedback. So I guess listening to feedback, like it's kind of like this interesting thing. I guess feedback and white noise are kind of in that same like 
category of like, you know, should we listen to it? Should we reject it? Should we accept it? Is it sound? Is it music? You know, working with feedback and kind of forcing people to listen to feedback. I guess like what I was working, I mean, I, I guess the frequencies that we listen to tonight with the feedback I worked to wasn't really what people expected feedback sounded like. It was much more ambient. It was much more like I think that's the feedback, the <laughs> feedback that I got from other people, that it was much more ambient. It was much more softer. And I guess what I was working with in the performance is kind of uncovering these other kind of edges around feedback. You know, feedback isn't all harsh, and that's kind of like what I try to uncover in my music is that nothing is ever one-dimensional. There's always multi-dimensions to sound, even feedback. Like, same thing with white noise, like I, like, I guess I always kind of get asked, like, oh, but white noise is always the same. And I'm like, no, there's always other dimensions to white noise. Like, there's, there's not one particular pattern of white noise and one particular pattern of feedback. It, like, there are ways to bend it and there are ways to kind of shape it and reshape it. And I guess I was working with feedback in performance where I would move back and forth from the megaphone and so it kind of like created this conversation between the creator and the creation what we're listening to and what's producing the listening you know and 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 you can, and, and you, you could kind of see this phantom space where you could kind of feel that you're breaking into feedback and then breaking back out into feedback and breaking into feedback and so like you're starting to create your own architecture like your own space within and between the megaphones as well yeah so so it was like you were dancing with your megaphone yeah yeah that's it a lot of the time um when i do use performance in my work you know there are essence of dance with it you know kind of aside from you know uh, like I do have a history of dance with, you know, and, and I guess that happens with a lot of, you know, like what you produce, like what you used to work with starts to bleed into what you work with now. And, but I guess like the dance element as well within feedback kind of creates this, like, I guess what, what I wanted to create with um, the megaphones with this like deceptive play of, you know, it looks like it's amplifying, but it's actually recording and absorbing. And... I, I guess the dance element as well kind of creates this kind of element of, I don't know, like a, like a way for us to accept feedback. You know, kind of um, the same way as like, oh, as soon as you play, you know, a particular like genre in a club, you force people to dance to it. And, you know, and over history and over time, like that's how like DJs in time have like started to bring out like um, genres into society and start to make it acceptable like you know like as soon as like you hear like rap music or like kind of like african-american music start getting played in like all these clubs where kind of like white people were kind of like attending and they were like oh wow i'm forced to dance to this and they like it it's kind of that same kind of thing where you are experiencing oh you can dance to feedback and like there is this kind of like your body does like start to move to sound just as it does with feedback and I guess like I'm interested in like background noise a lot of time and background noise is a concept that you know you push it behind you know because you have other sounds in front and it kind of like you can read that like a painting you know how you kind of like I prefer to see this and I rather not see that that's that's when it kind of becomes background noise but yeah if you put it I I guess if you put it that way, like 
if by rearranging the background and the foreground and putting the punctum <laughs> in the foreground where the background was, you know, like you force people to look at it and you force people to dance to it. Like, you know, like you force people to kind of like think about the movement of feedback itself, the rhythm of feedback itself. Because like I said before, I guess a lot of people kind of associate feedback with just one singular pattern. But there are rhythms and your body can change and it moves. And it, like, I, I, like, I guess with my work, I think I've said before, like, the visual element is important. So I guess seeing my body move is almost like seeing kind of like the, like the frequencies kind of like change and oscillate is like, yeah, you're also seeing my body oscillate as well. So it's, yeah, it's, it's the visual element of feedback, yeah. And if people want to see your work, is there somewhere they can find you? Yep, so a lot of my work, I've got my Facebook page. So that's facebook.com slash makersandlaggers. That's the URL. <laughs> but yeah, my name is Kit, so you'd find me as Kit. And then I've also got a SoundCloud where I release like a few of my experimentations. But yeah, my my Facebook is pretty much like an open source community where you know, you know, you're invited to input your ideas. And I mean, like I also work with theory. Like I'm, I, I am a theory student, so I like to kind of like like I'm big in the open source community like it's kind of good to put your stuff out there and share with everyone so yeah I've got Facebook and SoundCloud <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right, well Kit thank you very much thank you that was Kit speaking to me about her megaphone art at Dorkbot Kit's Facebook page is facebook.com makers and laggers and you can listen to her at soundcloud.com slash makers and laggers and that's all from us this week on Diffusion would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Contributing this week, Meow Ludo Meow Meow. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, and 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for videos and information about this week's show. You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free book of their choice from audibletrial.com slash science. Or look for the donate button on www.diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast directly. I'm considering a crowdfunding campaign for Diffusion, which means I need rewards for supporters. If you have any ideas what sort of rewards you might like in return for your financial support of Diffusion, please send an email to science at diffusionradio.com and let me know what you're thinking.
I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Latitude prevailing winds and ocean currents, mountains and the nearness to the sea. Things like that determine what we call the climate, determine what the climate of a place will be. What is the climate? It's the average weather in a particular area. What is the climate? It's the average weather over a period of time. Averages of temperatures and rain occurrence calculated scientifically. Things like that determine what we call the climate. Determine what the climate of a place will be. What is the climate? It's the average weather in a particular area. What is the climate? It's the average weather over a period of time. Climate, it's the average weather in a particular area. What is the climate? It's the average weather over a period of time.